Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Ms. Genevieve Pope. Many dental practices struggle to implement the necessary change to achieve the results they are looking for. Genevieve Pope has a unique understanding of what it takes to help dentists achieve their practice vision. Her experience as an owner and manager of a seven practice affiliate group refined Genevieve's processes and approach to practice growth and management. Her ability to develop strong dental teams with excellent patient communication skills keeps her in high demand. From dental assistant to practice owner, Genevieve brings a unique perspective and real world experience in many aspects of dentistry. Prior to speaking and consulting, Genevieve co-founded an affiliate group where she architected and facilitated numerous practice acquisitions and transitions. From practice startup to transition, Genevieve has the skills and knowledge to implement systems for business and team success. As a speaker and consultant, clients and teams find Genevieve's relatable and knowledgeable. Her presentations are engaging and relevant and meaty with immediately applicable content. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Ms. Genevieve Pope. Genevieve, it is so awesome to have you here with me today. I am so excited to introduce you to my audience. And can't wait to hear about how you got your start in dentistry. Well, I am so happy to be here today and excited to share with um, the amazing women that I've come to know in dentistry. Awesome. Thank you. So how did you get your start in dentistry and, and what made you interested in dentistry in the first place? I had dentistry on my radar in high school. Uh, I thought maybe being a dental hygienist would be something that would suit me. It was I didn't really see myself going to, to full uh, length of college. I didn't have a lot of support to do that. So hygiene was kind of on my radar. And um, I was kind of a naughty teenager. So <laughs> not kind of a really naughty teenager. Um, so my guidance counselor actually got me a job at Dr. Smith's office in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, that allowed me to leave school early and go be basically a hygiene assistant. I got to clean instruments and I'm old enough that I hand wrote recare re postcards. <laughs> You know, like I, I did all that little stuff and I was so excited. I got to wear scrum pants and I got to leave school early, which I would have been doing anyway. And this way I was getting school At credit. At least you were getting paid and you had some place to go. <laughs> that was smart of that guy. It was very smart. I actually owe, owe her a lot of gratitude for that single move um, because it allowed me to really find a, pl a place that I just clicked. I think some people click in a dental office. It feels like what we're supposed to do. I actually wound up graduating high school pregnant and I didn't go to hygiene school, but I, I went to dental assisting what I, and what I thought would be an interim step to going to hygiene school as a young mother. And I loved assisting. I assisted for many years. I'd, I'd retire from what I do now to go back to assisting. I really, really enjoyed it. But from there, kind of made my way up to more office management and practice management in a private, more panky style practice um, back in the 90s. And um, ultimately, <laughs> I, a few more experiences in between there. I left dentistry briefly to go work in private equity because I needed a break from a difficult doctor that I worked for. 
and um, got the idea to start an affiliate group in Wisconsin. So I actually went on to own and manage seven practices in Wisconsin for a period of time. Wow, good for you. That's awesome, Genevieve. Yeah, uh, so I, I have had a really interesting, probably pretty unique path in dentistry that's allowed me to sort of experience a lot of different levels and layers of the roles in it. And so in, in working as a consultant now, I think the thing that I, I bring to the table is a really, really applicable, really approachable, very real world insight into these jobs. They're things I've done. And I really love, I have a bad partnership story, which we could get into if you want. Um, but I had to sort of exit my interest in that group and um, move on to doing something more independently, which suits me better. And um, now I help other doctors sort of build their empire, whether that's one thriving practice or a small group or you know, get things back on the track to bring in another doctor. It's, it's fun to be able to apply it in different ways for different people. So um, let's go back to that relationship. Is, is it, was it something that um, male, female, was it something that, you know, there was some um, deceit going on? Like what, what actually happened? It was male, female, um, and really a lot of inequity from the beginning. I was young enough and um, I guess insecure enough to believe that he brought more value to the table than I did because he had an MBA and all I knew how to do was run a dental office. Uh, however, the entire business we built was based on my knowledge and ability to make dental offices transition and thrive. And um, my first biggest mistake was undervaluing myself to begin with, right? The next real issue was that it's interesting in a lot of male-female dynamics. A lot of times I find men in dentistry are more conflict-diverse than women are. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I was actually sort of our operational arm in our partnership, obviously. So I was the one in having tough conversations about progress and issues and obstacles in the offices with doctors who I was their boss um, as a relatively young woman, right? And um, the relationship came to be where the doctors could actually circumvent me and go to my partner and he would undermine me. Ugh. I think initially, not very intentionally. I think that happens a lot of times where, where people can get off track. You know, a person goes to them. They want to say a thing that appeases a person. I don't think it started maliciously, but it, it did become very toxic. And so I was always held accountable to the results of the practices, but completely undermined along the way in my ability to be respected within them. And it, it just became, you know, unfixable over time. You know, you said something extremely important and I, I really want to go back to it because I think it's, it's a critical issue for women everywhere. It doesn't matter what profession we're in is undervaluing ourselves and not really understanding what our worth is. Um, I think that it doesn't matter how much education we have, but what's fair is fair. You know, I may not, you know, be the smartest person in the room. You may not be the smartest person in the room, but you have street smarts. And what you've learned in that street smart sense is extremely valuable because Ben had done that. You, you know what it takes to, to be successful and what it takes to have a successful thriving practice. So that's too bad, but I think it's important that women really understand that some of these interactions are, are necessary for our own personal growth. I think um, 
I had a doctor when I told him this story, told me, you know, all educations come at a cost. And um, that one was, was big for me. And, you know, this is not just me as a, I mean, you would think I could look at this as a, as a person who's gone from teenage mom dental assistant to owning dental practices and feel like I was worth something. But I still going into that felt like I was at the end of the day, just a dental assistant. And, um, you know, I, I try to share that now when I work with teams, not just when I work with ownership and doctors, but there's no such thing as just a dental assistant. There's no such thing as just a receptionist. We say that about ourselves all the time. And unfortunately, we hear it. Uh, we do. I, I had young male doctors that worked for me in moments of pushback or where they were being sort of held accountable to their own performance as you know, future partners in this practice, actually look at me and tell me that I'm just a dental assistant. I, I literally signed their paycheck and, and their egos would have to protect them in a way that they, would, they, had, they could find some footing to put me in my place. And I think, and actually not even, I actually had a female dentist say that to me. So, you know, we all have, fragile egos. People struggle to receive feedback sometimes, but there's a lot of pecking order in dentistry where we need to feel elevated to other people. Even within dental assistants, one has to be the better one. You know, at the front, somebody has to be superior. It's strange how prevalent it is within our practices. So like everything in our life kind of reinforces the idea that we're just something. And it's very hard. It's easy to say we should value ourselves, but we don't actually have a lot of experience that leads us to feel that way. Especially if it occurs over and over and over again. I do know that um, in dentistry, that perfectionistic attitude is very common and a common thread throughout all of, of dentistry. It doesn't yes. matter if you're a dentist or a hygienist, that, that, that finite world. And I always talk about how, you know, my whole world existed for many years when I was working in a one inch circle Mm -hmm. magnified to this degree um, that I could see all of the little nicks from, you know, the, the diamond that I use, but quite honestly, that world it's filled with all of the things that you have to observe. And because of that perfectionism in our mentality, you know, anything outside of that is uncomfortable for us. Yep. Our comfort zones in dentistry, we, we know that we have to step outside our comfort zone. We've all seen the graphic. <laughs> Every great speaker has it. But it's really true. Um, I, I tell people all the time, you know, a lot of my growth came through having a coach that was kind of tough on me. And many of my sessions involved crying at a picnic table, (laughs) quite literally. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think because I, I I got to a place where I felt like I had to seek that type of growth. I was, you know, I was able to push through the amount of discomfort that I did, but a lot of people, even though they want to grow or they want to read or they want to learn, kind of going to that perfectionistic side is I see this all the time. Instead of just saying this is a, a no better, do better scenario, like now I can do something better. They can't seem to help but filter it back that what they've been doing is wrong. And that stops them, you know, like, if this is right, then what I've been doing is wrong. 
And that isn't really how it works. You know, it doesn't mean that what you've been doing is wrong. It just means that there's an opportunity to do something new or better or more effectively or a different way. And, you know, if every, and it's interesting the way we can not do that necessarily to clinical things like doctors go to CE and they learn a new technique or they go to a meeting and they see a new material. And that doesn't mean every restoration they've placed to that date is wrong or bad. <laughs> it just means they're trying something new. But when we introduce that with leadership or communication concepts or just sort of personal growth, it's much harder to look at it that way. It, it's, it feels like to, to accept this thing being true or right, it means everything else was wrong. And that's where I see a lot of people stand on their own way of getting better, getting bigger, moving on their roles you know, I meet a lot of people in dental offices that wish they could be a dental consultant. That's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But it takes more than just knowing how to do the stuff. <laughs> you know, it takes learning to take feedback and be vulnerable and share your share. A lot of the things I've ever learned, I learned through failing at them, you know, through <laughs> more than once. <laughs> you know what? It is by far the best educational model, right? Because you know... All those ways and how not to do something now. Yep. I think it was uh, uh, Ford that, no, it was Edison. 999 ways not to make the electric light bulb. Finally on the thousands. <laughs> and, and he almost blew up his lab and all the people in it, I think with like, like 990 something. And, and they're like, give it up, give it up, give it up. And he said, nope, it's just been 999 ways not to do it. And on the thousandth attempt, he, he figured it out. And look how much it's changed our world. Because he didn't give up and he didn't quit, um, even though he was failing over and over and over again. Absolutely. Uh, it takes some resilience to, to, you know, take it on the chin over and over. And I think for, at least in my career, to get, you know, sort of above being an office manager, which sort of used to be the tops you could be in dentistry if you weren't a dentist or a high, you know, it took me a lot of hard stuff. I mean, I, I, I've taken it on the chin. I've, I've had massive failings in relationships that were painful, <laughs> you know, a massive failing in a business partnership. They, they were hard, they really hard. When I, when I had to step away and sort of break up with my former partner, it was devastating. I mean, I, I, it probably took me a year <laughs> to really bounce back. Yeah. It's got to be devastating because you, it's kind of like now where, you know, throughout all of COVID, you know, prior, pre-COVID, right? We all knew what we were doing and, and what we'd be doing for Thanksgiving and what we'd be doing for Christmas and, and we'd have our trips planned for next year and all of those things that we just take for granted. Not everything is up in the air and you can't plan for anything. And I think that that is one of the hardest things that we have had to learn through most of this. There's a lot of silver linings, I think, from what we've been through, but you know, particularly difficult is, is not being able to plan ahead, not being able to have surety and, and control over what's ahead. You know, we, we can't plan anything because we don't know the impact of the next surge. Yep. It, it, it feels like we're just waiting for the bottom to drop out, which is, is not, <laughs> it's not a fun feeling. For me, honestly, coming out of it, what I really had was a crisis of confidence. 
if you've ever worked in a working relationship with undermining, it is really damaging in a long-term situation because I, I really came to feel over the course of a few years, like I was not effective at anything. Like I thought I really knew what I was doing here. I, I don't even feel effective at a single thing. And I had people that I worked really hard for and put a lot on the line personally to, to create positions for, you know, lose respect for me. And really when I came out of that position, even though it's pretty uniquely positioned me in the realm of dentistry that I know some things, I honestly struggled with whether or not I could take on a part-time phone coaching job because I, I didn't think I was even good enough to teach an office manager how to answer the phone. Like I was that destroyed. And I'm actually really good <laughs> at teaching people how to answer. I have no doubt that that is true. I'm actually quite great at it, but it took me like baby steps to get back to remembering the ways that I can help people and what I do now. And so, you know, like one of the, uh, something that I really watch for in team dynamics or if I'm helping build organizations, big or small, is situations where people can unintentionally undermine each other or the toxicity of that sort of scapegoating, undermining behavior. Because most people that I see doing it are not malicious in their, in their efforts, but they don't understand the impact and the damage that they cause. One, their whole organization will never get traction. They'll never get anything done because the person being charged with making sure it gets done is no, no, no authority or no respect from the, the people that you're undermining them to. But also it's, it's a really um, defeating loop to be in if you've ever been in that as a manager role. So uh, I have, and um, you know, one of the things that I have also had to deal with is as a narcissistic type personality, yes. where almost like a caged animal, when you feel threatened, you know, you're going to attack, and that behavior is really, really uncomfortable and and extremely damaging to teams, to everyone that you're working with. And when the um, obvious blame gets put on your head, obviously it's, it's kind of like, wait a minute, this is not, hold on. This is not, has nothing to do with me. So yeah, it's, it's really, it's a challenge. Um, and, and I am so happy that you've been able to come out on the other side. You know, what did you learn most about gaining your confidence back in, in that journey? Because that to me is fascinating. And, you know, one of, as I've explained to you, one of the reasons why the podcast was started is to share, you know, confidence building steps for young women and, and how to, even though they don't know how to do something, to just put their first foot forward and just do something. One step every day will get you there. I think that is part of it is the willingness to fail again, potentially. It's like the, the bravery to realize that, you know, this didn't work and I have to try again and knowing that the thousandth time it'll work. Right. So it takes a little bit of, you know, courage or resilience in a weird way. I was sort of born into a life that built resilience in me as a young child. So I think I, I have some of that like grit that maybe isn't always common in like younger 
um, dentists that I see today, which there's not saying all of them, but a lot of them, uh, just not that much. (laughs) I'm getting older, (laughs) quite a bit younger than me. You know, we're just raised in a very different way where they were intentionally spared failures, where they were, um, they don't actually come into their careers having ever really been knocked down. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it feels harder to them to take those steps. You know, it feels like a bigger failure because, you know, I've actually interviewed people, a question I ask in an, in an interview at all different levels is tell me about a time you really screwed something up, mm-hmm. your biggest mistake ever, like what happened and what did you do? And I actually am starting to um, interview people in a generation where they're like, can't really think of a thing. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it's obvious like they didn't not screw something up. It's happened. I just think that a lot of younger people were raised that like we minimized those things and we, sh- yeah. you know, we, we made them feel better about it and um, they weren't ever made to feel like they screwed something up. And so in a way, I, I mean, it's like you almost need to get it out of the way. <laughs> like you're, you need to know going in, like you're going to screw it up a lot of times. You, you will have, you will lose good people that you loved and cared about because you did something the wrong way. You will lose relationships because you messed it up. You will lose patience because you messed it up. You will lose teeth because you messed it up. You know, like you're, it's going to happen. And it's really part of the career in dentistry. Like it's really part of just being, having a career in general. But, you know, I think the other thing that I really discovered in my own confidence in, in that rebuild was that a lot of my confidence early came, I want to say this from a place of almost righteousness, right? Like I relied a lot on the fact that I was right, which I was. Meaning I knew what I was doing. I knew that this was the right thing. And so I, I relied a lot on my conviction and, and uh, righteousness in, in outcome. And that's where I got my confidence was conviction. And I was really proud of it. And my former partner actually used to say to me, like, your confidence comes with a chip on your shoulder. And I couldn't really understand what he meant because I've never felt like I was a person with a chip on my shoulder. I didn't feel like I ever thought I was superior to anybody but I realized now and looking back at it, what it was is that I, in order to feel confident to approach something or address something, I did sort of puff up and rely on what I knew about this thing or what I knew to be true. And um, I was right a lot, but I, I wasn't effective a lot. You know, I, it doesn't really matter <laughs> if you're right. So what matters is, can you get this team to do this? Can you get the outcome you're going for? And I read actually in that time frame. I read a book called Presence by Amy Cuddy. Oh, I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. So she did a TED talk that probably a lot of people have seen. If you haven't, it's a great TED talk. It's uh, it's on the power posing, but it's basically how you can hack confidence with your posture, right? Like that we can trick ourselves into feeling confident with posture, and not so much doing the posture while you need confidence, but in advance of it, it changes your chemistry and it's actually kind of cool. that piece of it is cool but what was really cool about it is like when she gave that talk she sort of went off track and revealed her own experience with imposter syndrome and after doing that talk just people from all over the world were emailing her and writing her and say and very very successful people were writing her to say you know I felt just like that I feel like a fraud I feel mm-hmm. um I feel like any minute people are going to find out that I don't really belong here. 
And I, I think I had more of that than I realized, you know, kind of coming into my role without feeling on the same footing as a dentist mm-hmm. or my partner with an MBA. And so my confidence, I think, came across probably kind of aggressive. And it was in reading that book and just sort of examining myself that I, I think just sort of sank into, like, I know what I know. I help how I help. This is what I am. I have evidence to show me that I'm you know, successful at it and I don't need to be perfect at it. And it wasn't like a light bulb, but it, it really, I think sometimes you read, a, you read a book or you see a thing right at the moment you need it. For me, that was that book. Um, and for anybody struggling in confidence, I think it's, it's an incredible read. I mean, it's, it's a really good one. I'm, I recommend it. I buy it a lot and give it to people. <laughs> I email the TED Talk frequently. Um, but that's, to me, it was finding a different way of being confident that has brought me back to probably a new level of it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a great story. And thanks for sharing that. I mean, and, and being open to share that. It's, it's really wonderful to hear. What do you think was the single best piece of advice you've gotten in your career? Um, anything to support that? Or, you know, when you were going through the recovery process, which it sounds like you were recovering, you know, like we all do from whether it's a relationship or a business or whatever. I mean, it's a recovery system, right? And we go through those four stages, you know, where you, you're angry and uh, you can be a little bit blamey. And then all of a sudden you step back and you realize, okay, how did I contribute to this? And, you know, what do I need to do to improve myself better and more for the next time and be prepared for the next um, adventure, whatever it is? Yeah, honestly, one of my best piece of, pieces of advice ties into this a little bit, but wasn't really about this. Um, kind of going back to the way that I used to manage or communicate my confidence, which at, then, at that point was not necessarily a positive thing. I, I was a very frustrated manager. I, it, things felt so obvious to me, you know, I felt like I explained this, you know, I didn't have a lot of patience in the way I communicated with team members. And which is weird, because I have it in endless amounts for patients, right? Like, what I can give to a patient is, it's ridiculous. Um, But for my team, I just didn't share it. I was like a once, twice, if I have to tell you, that's it. And it's just not, it's not an effective way to manage. And it it left me not in my best place um, as a leader. And so in one of my crying picnic table sessions, (laughs) my coach told me, you are going to have to learn to have more comfort in a better relationship with repetition or you're going to fail. And she said it pretty harshly, actually, (laughs) but she was right. And the first thing I said to her was like, you don't understand. You know, I say it all the time. You know, I, I wasn't hearing her, but like many things, I absorbed it a little bit later. And I had to actually figure out how I would do that. Like I, I didn't know how I would go into being repetitive and like repeating the same things that seemed silly to me and seemed obvious to me and seemed frustrating to me without that coming through. And I actually called her back and just said, I don't know how to do that. Like I'm, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know if I have the capacity to do it. I, I don't. Like maybe my job is just to know the things and somebody else should do that. And she said, no, you can. And so what she taught me to do, and I'm grateful for this skill today, is um, when I've said something once or twice and I feel like a person isn't 
with it or receiving it, whether it's they don't get it or they're not listening. I, I actually say to myself still, oh, good, another opportunity to clarify. <laughs> I have to say, oh, good, another opportunity to clarify. And in doing that, I can approach it just that way, you know, without being mad, without having frustration come through with the intention being, I need to be more clear about this. Here's another chance to repeat myself and feel good about it. And it's simple, like sometimes just our own ability to reframe something that we have to do a lot to get the outcome we want. That was pivotal for me to be able to do that in, in terms of my effectiveness with people. And has that changed everything about the way you, you interact with the teams? I, I honestly would say it does. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it does. And you know, what it does when you can do that is it um, helps you develop real candor, right? Like you can really just be candid with people. Like I think candor is essential to like having real relationships with people. And to me, candor is a sign of respect. Like I will just, you know, I respect you enough to tell you, right? But a lot of times the way we use candor is that it, it comes across harsh. And so like if you have frequency of feedback and you can do it without attaching any emotion or they're doing that at me or they're purposely disrespecting me or any of those things that come into it when we normally do it. it I think it helped me hone the way that I, the level of candor I can have with people without them receiving me as somebody who's angry with them or, you know, mean to them. Like it, it's, it's received how I mean it, how I feel about it, which is I want to help you with this, you know? And they feel safe, right? Yeah. When you, when you portray that different, so I ha, I'm a firm believer in, in our words, our emotions, our presence has an energy field to it and has an energy about it. And that energy, positive or negative, affects the other person. And so they may not understand it, but their reaction to you is exactly what you're portraying. So when people lash back at you, it's because in their mind, you're lashing out at them. So they're equalizing the energy and portraying it back to you. So critically important is for us to understand that it's not necessarily the other person is having a bad day. What did you do or what did you say that might have impacted that person to provoke that, right? Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to ask yourself because, you know, we all think we're, we're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't. Like we're in dentistry. We're perfect. I, uh, we don't want to see it, but you know, I, I love that you said that because I, there's a saying I use all the time, which is, um, you don't manifest the outcome you want. You manifest the outcome you believe. And it's just what you're saying. You know, if I'm walking up to Susie and I'm going to nicely say this thing, but fundamentally, I believe she's too stupid to get it. That's exactly how it's going to come across. No matter what words come out of my mouth, that's what she'll feel. And that's what she's going to get from it. And she's going to be like horrified. And it doesn't always matter the words you use. It really matters the intention you go in with. And you'll find the right words if you go in with the right energy. And so for me, being able to adjust, like teaching myself that I can reframe how I'm thinking about it before going into it has been, has been really, really powerful for me. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. What made the biggest impact on your life? What do you think? Is it, was there an event? Was, was it, you know, anything in particular, but who or what made the biggest impact on your life? Probably, you know, two formative things for me is one that I um, grew up without a mother. I, my, my dad actually won custody of me, won custody of me as a young child, me and my sister due to some not great in circumstances for me. So I was sort of um, thrust into like a female head of household uh, type of role when I was five, you know, so um, I mean, not fully, but largely, <laughs> I was like the female caretaker head of household of a pretty dysfunctional family early. And I think that's, you know, while sad at the time, um, and hard for a lot of years, it is what I talk about when I, when I say I can access the grit or the, the ability to know that like, I can take it on the chin. I might, you know, cry for a day, but I, I can get back up and do it. And then I think the second would be, you know, being, being a young mother. While in a lot of ways I was prepared for that because I had basically always been a mother <laughs> to my little sister and the second little sister along the way. I was just very, I would say hellbent on not being some sad teen mom story. You know, I didn't want that to be my life or for my son, you know, and I grew up without a lot and I just didn't want him to be that kid. You know, I didn't want him to be the kid who, not that I wanted expected he would have the best of everything, but I didn't want him to be like literally the only child in the eighties who didn't have a cabbage patch doll, you know, (laughs) I wanted him to have some things that his friends had. And so I, it just put me, I think, set off my work ethic, which I probably just always had, but um, gave me a real reason to kind of get out and do something. Um, We needed a why, don't we? I mean, I think we all uh, do so much better when we have a why. Yeah. And so he's my why and uh, <laughs> uh, still is. And um, how old is he now? He just turned 23. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. He's pretty awesome. <laughs> I bet he is. I bet he is. So when you reflect back, I mean, that obviously tough, tough upbringing, tough childhood, you know, your confidence, because I can tell that you're a confident woman obviously was shaken a couple of times in your career, but how do you feel like you gained that? And is there something that you can share with the young women out there that might be going through something similar on what they can do to help gain their confidence? Um, There's, it's such a hard thing. I actually have this conversation because, you know, it's not something you can gift somebody or like necessarily help somebody to, the best advice I could say is that you would, you would be amazed at what you can do if you try, you know, if you just, if you just leap, like if you just do the crazy thing, if you just try and some, for some people that's small, like, you know, I, I have a son that my, my son hates to like make a phone call. (laughs) He's that here. So for some people it's like taking the step to do that one thing you're scared of and realize that you didn't die like that's I think sometimes just the first thing is like pick the smallest thing you're scared of and just do it you know I um I say that but I'm not preaching the other day I literally had to spend like 
seven minutes talking myself into being brave enough to kill a spider with a flip-flop. So I'm not, <laughs> I know that it's hard to do things that we're afraid of, you know, but then I did it. I finally was just like, one, two, three, and I ran, you know, charged the wall and killed the spider. But, um, so I reframed spiders. I'll, I'll share this with you because maybe this will help you. I reframed spiders. And in my mind, now, every time I see a spider, I say, oh, good. They're going to get rid of the ticks and the mosquitoes and all those little bugs that I don't want. Okay, you stay over here. I'll stay over here. But you take care of all those other little things. So I just reframed it in my mind. And when I see them, I, I don't freak out. I, I sometimes will gently put the bigger ones on a little Kleenex <laughs> and put them back outside because I don't want to see them anymore. But, um, you know, I did, I did have an experience once um, when, when I was younger and my daughter was little, my, we had a boat and, you know, at the beginning of every season, you know, it seemed like the spiders took up residence in our boat all winter long, right? So by the time we would come down and have to clean it out, I couldn't do the first clean through because the spiders were just everywhere and disgusting. Um, and I think I've, I learned to reframe it at that point because I love the boat so much. Yes. I just had to learn to adapt and deal with it. And so maybe that's a lesson that we, you know, that we can take and expand upon down the road, but you know, just reframing how you think about things. Th uh, I love, it's Wayne Dwyer that said, change the way you look at things and the things you look at will change. And I love that because I didn't understand it for the longest time. It took me saying that over and over and over again for me to finally get it. And I went, oh my God, yeah, just change the way you're looking at it. The first time I heard concepts like this of reframing or changing your perspective or changing your assumption, I talk a lot about, you know, finding the positive assumption, the benefit of the doubt and how that applies to people we communicate with, how it applies to patient care, especially. And, um, but when I first had that on my radar, I honestly, I can, t I swear to you, I was just like, I roll. I thought it was so stupid, like whatever you know, hand me a crystal, you know, I was super snarky about it. I was not, I was not hearing it, you know, I was not getting it. So I guess the good news is if you're at that moment listening to this podcast, there will come a day where you'll think back on that idea and it will, it, there'll be a moment that it makes sense. Um, or I hope that that happens for you. Um, but you can actually cheat it. Like you can actually just say, you know what, maybe this sounds stupid to me, but, um, I'm going to give it a whirl anyway. And you can, you can cheat it. You can fake it to make it a little bit in that regard, you know? So like, even when I have team members who are struggling to provide repetition to a new treatment coordinator or a new young dental assistant, and I tell them my trick of saying, Oh good. Another opportunity to clarify all the time. I get people like whatever, you know, they, they, they think it's silly, but I'm like, promise me you'll try it for a week, you know, just give it a whirl. Just, take a leap of faith. You don't have to believe me just, but just try it. And the thing is, it doesn't take very many tries at it to realize that it did work. <laughs> and, and then you just do it. So because, okay, now I get it. Right. Because you've had the experience, right. And I, it's, it's just one more experience that builds up on each other 
that gives us the confidence and the knowledge. And I think that that's the biggest key, right? It's not that we don't want to understand these things. We just haven't had the knowledge or the ability to learn them yet. Because imagine trying to learn everything that we need to learn in, in you know, like a second, right? We can't do that. Um, there's a, a book, uh, the, belief, the Biology of Belief, and it's, it's the study of neuroscience. And one of the most fascinating things that I was reading in it this week was that um, children zero to six years old are super learners. That means they don't have to see all the, they don't have to hear or, or see it written. They just observe and they learn. And it's, it's, it's with everything. That's why they can learn, you know, six languages at once and, and be able to distinguish all six of them. But by the time we're eight, we stop with the super learning. So that stops and we have the inability to learn that many languages at that short amount of time because we, we don't have the um, ability to, to track it all because we are using our senses for other things. So it's critically important in those first six years to make sure that they are observing great things. You know, uh, when I heard you speaking of, of your past, I, 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 can, I can see where, you know, some of the things maybe that you struggled through were because of your upbringing and maybe the, the things that you repeatedly heard that were subconscious to you. Same thing, I, I can share the same thing with my own family and, and, and not that it was 100% dysfunctional, but you know, my dad was, was a perfectionist and, you know, he, he had an unbelievable work ethic, but when I would bring home an A, he'd always say, well, how come you can't do that all the time? Okay. Seriously, I got an A, dad. You know, can't you just be happy about the one A? But it was always like I was struggling constantly to, to prove that I could, you know, be that daughter that, that got good grades, right? And it was hard for me. It, was, it did not come easy for me. I did not have confidence. I did not have a lot of self-worth. And I struggled for many, many years. Yeah, we all carry, you know, that's, we all carry stuff that impacts our ability to pick something up or apply something yeah. Yeah. as it's intended. And so, you know, that's where that finding ease and like peace and repetition and finding different ways to try things with people and not taking them not doing it or them not getting it personally exactly. is so important. I, I was just talking to an office manager this week, my one just came home from, and she's struggling with a team member. And um, I, I just said, well, you know, you have to repeat it with her. I, we've talked about this, you know, She's like, well, I told her. I'm like, how many times have you told her? Well, it really is once that she told her, you know, and I just said, you have to pick two things and just, and be repetitive with those. And she's like, she's going to test me. She's going to, you know, she's, she's prepping herself up that this is going to be a problem. And I said, so maybe she won't work out, but you'll get to practice your repetition, right? Like that's the, that's the bonus. But the other thing is that like her not doing it isn't to test you. Her pushing back is maybe the way you're, like you said, is maybe the way you're presenting it, you know, or it's maybe her own inability to manage change or feel insecure for a moment. Like all the things that come back at us, very few of them have much to do with us. <laughs> so, so, it's so true. It's so true. When you could really get at ease with that, it's like, it, it makes this, this 
side of this big part of, you know, owning and running an office, which is managing a team or leading a team, which feels so hard. Mm -hmm. It makes it feel so much less stressful and so much less taxing when you can, I don't know, just be easy with, with that feedback and, and normalize it for a team that we talk about things, you know? Well, here's a good one for you. What you resist persists. And I have found that when there's resistance to anything, whether it is a concept, whether it is physical resistance, whether you just don't plain want to do something, right? Like get out of bed in the morning. Oh my gosh, the after effects of persisting in resisting something mm-hmm. has worse, in, in, worse impact on you personally and emotionally than it does if you just got up and did it. And took care of it or eat the frog, right? Exactly. 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 So, you know, I I I I find that I remind myself of that all the time. Okay, what are you resisting? Because obviously this is coming back to haunt you again, MJ. Okay, take a deep breath. Just go with the flow and see if we can get through this. You know, it's like all the self-talk and so funny. All right. So who in dentistry inspires you? And somebody outside of dentistry, I mean, you know, is there somebody in your life that, that inspires you to do what you do and, and become good at it? I think I've had a lot of inspirations along the way. You know, there are people, sometimes you feel like you're crazy when you're talking about things or you, you're thinking about things with what seems like a, a different way and then they you hear somebody else sort of saying the same thing and it feels like, Oh, you know, so I have that in little glimmers of, of moments. Um, my own dentist, my own, uh, dentist friend, (laughs) client, um, Mike Fling is actually, he's a great educator. He gives a lot of his time to educating. Um, I, when I see private practices that are still putting the energy and effort into like really taking care of people, I find that really inspiring. Um, I help people build groups, but I, in my heart, always love helping like an, a true, like patient, patient directed fee for service, private practice, really make it in a tough world. That's that, that inspires me. Yeah. I, I, I was talking to a hygienist, um, earlier this week and she was sharing a story about, um, you know, she worked with a dentist to give a person a smile. Um, he had just, you know, recent, he, he couldn't afford to have any treatment done, but then was recently diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, so, of course, you know, his mouth was a mess and, you know, he had to go through chemotherapy and all this kind of stuff. And so they wanted to clean him up beforehand. And they worked with their lab and worked with the hygienist and the dentist and the team all got together and they all worked for free for the day um, so that they could do everything in this guy's mouth. And the lab worked with them and charged him $1,200 for a six unit bridge and everything else was free. And it just brought me to tears because that's the kind of stuff that you do that changes a life. It gives you goosebumps. It gives you that, oh my God, I've impacted just one person's world. But the ripple effect of that one person and that demonstration of love, and that's basically in its purest form is exactly what that is. 
that demonstration of love spreads everywhere because the only request they had for him was just pay it for someday, you know, and it was an amazing story. And I, I was bawling my eyes out. I could even start getting teary just thinking about it now. I think we're lucky and I think people don't understand when they, they're outside of dentistry. Like it seems like such a, a straightforward thing, but when you see what changes in a person after they go from feeling bad about themselves to feeling good about themselves, it doesn't even, it's not even always the most cosmetic thing. It's just feeling like I hadn't taken care of myself to feeling like I have. And it, yeah, it, <laughs> it gets me every time. Yeah, it does. What, um, what is one thing that people would be surprised to know about you? Oh, well, um, I love 90s hip hop and I'm a really good dancer. Oh, awesome. <laughs> That's great. How did you, how did you learn to dance so well? I grew up in the ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's okay. Quite, quite literally on the side of the street. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's awesome. So it would be something that you would do after school. Yeah. Yeah. In the summers, you know, we just had music playing. So, I mean, I just, um, I don't know. Some people like to dance. I, I'm not like a formal dancer. Just I'm, I'm fun to have at your wedding or your party. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. That's a great one. I've never had anybody say that one. That's, uh, that's awesome. Um, how about an aha moment when you realized that you were doing exactly what you were meant to do? Oh boy. Um, you know, I, I feel like I have little ahas. Um, I think even myself, I sometimes feel like it, I try to, there are things that I try as a consultant that I can't make the impact I want to on. And I, I have moments that I wonder like, what else should I be doing? But, but then I have clients that call me and thank me for things that I thought seemed very small, you know, nuggets that I gave or something I said in passing or a little thing that I just didn't strike me as like really hard or really significant in the moment, but it meant something to them. And and then I feel good that, you know, I was in their path to help them see that thing or understand this thing differently or feel good about their practice or. And whatever that was, it doesn't matter, but oh my gosh, how wonderful that some, well, first of all, someone took the time to call you and let you know. I think that that is one of the greatest gifts that we can give people is just to, to call them and say, oh my gosh, you had no idea that you did this, but you had a huge impact on my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those are my those are my favorites. Those little ones. Absolutely. Now, what's your favorite way to manage stress? Because we all know that dentistry is not <laughs> in regular times or during COVID. <laughs> Admittedly, COVID, it's been a lot of skinny pop and rosé. But um, <laughs> generally, um, you know, I I find that I need to make time. I, part, I travel a lot. So I need to make time to actually just allow myself to not do anything, to not have a sense of obligation. Like I can have a weekend where nothing's scheduled, you know, where I don't have to do something that helps me a lot to just, to just know that I don't have something on my plate for a period of time. It's how my, how my brain kind of relaxes. 
And how, what do you do with your time? Is there something that is your favorite thing to do? Hiking or anything, gardening, um, whatever? Some days it is forensic files on the couch. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just tired. I just need to rest and not feel guilty about it. Um, you know, but I, I also really like Pilates. I've come to in, really enjoy Pilates over the last couple of years. Um, and that's kind of what I will do to kind of get physical or get out of the house and go be around predominantly other women and, you know, focus on something other than myself, just the motions. And that is my way to exercise and clear my, my mind at once. Good for you. Good for you. You know, do you have a personal motto or, or a, a quote that you live by? I, you know, I think probably kind of what I said earlier, which is you, you manifest what you believe, you know? So when I find myself in a place where maybe things are not really rolling for me or I'm in a funk or I'm negative or sad, I, I have to take a look at myself and say, you know, how am I attracting this? You know, and a lot of times it's, some negative thought or belief I'm carrying about myself or about my situation or about what's right or wrong. Or, you know, it, it's usually comes down to where my focus, where my focus is or has been. Yeah. Yeah. They, they talk a, a, a lot about that in that book on um, biology, I believe I was telling you about I wrote that down. I'm, I'm going to read that. I love that. It's a fascinating book. And, and the whole thing about neurobiology and neuroscience is really starting to, to nag at me and, and pull at me. I, I can't get enough of it uh, because, you know, we actually have the ability to change our whole body um, right down to the cellular level in the DNA based on experiences and based on um, the impact that emotions can have on us. So you know, I, I think that that is something that fascinates me that, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, our bodies were so resilient like that. And it wasn't, it's not been something that's ever crossed my mind. I'm intrigued. I'm, it's a for sure read for me. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I think that you, once you get, once you read one book, it, it's going to, it's going to have that domino effect and, and it'll be many more afterwards. And I'll, I can share a bunch of them with you. Okay, I'll get your list. <laughs> I think I think I probably have. I, that's one thing that I I I really have. Um, if I could own a library, you know those big mansions with the whole library and the the moving ladders and all, oh my gosh! If I <laughs> if I ever had uh, that, would be one of the first thing I would put in a mansion. Is is that's a awesome. You'd be like Beauty and the Beast moment, yeah, right? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I don't know if you um, have ever been to the Biltmore um, in North Carolina, in Asheville. Oh my gosh, I, I, my sister and I just happened to go there on uh, a trip this summer uh, on the way back from San Antonio, Texas, where she lives. And we stopped by and because I had always wanted to go, she had always wanted to go. And both of us are kind of into Downton Abbey. And so we stopped in. And I, I, I could not believe the, the size of this home. It was bigger than, than castles in Europe. I mean, it was humongous. I've never seen anything like it. But the one thing that I loved about the story about the people was that they provided, he and his wife provided all the education for anyone that wanted it in the entire town for free. 
So if you wanted to learn how to be a craftsman, if you wanted to learn how to sew clothes, if you wanted to learn how to do anything, he brought in craftsmen and taught the village how to be self-sufficient and to build and grow and expand. And they built this whole infrastructure in this area just because this one man gave what he had to everybody near him. That's amazing. I didn't know that. I've seen specials of it. Like I've seen it on TV, you know, but I, I, just, I didn't know much of the story. Behind Fascinating it. story. So if you ever have the time, please go. But one of the things that was mesmerizing to me was the library in that room. I, I just could have spent, I could have spent forever there. It was just so beautiful. <laughs> Just so beautiful. Makes you realize how much you still don't know, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like, oh my gosh, how many books can I, can I fit in? Um, you know, and, and just read. I, I, I just, I, I could do that forever. But anyway, my, my list of books is quite copious because that's one of the things that's my passion is, is books and reading. And I tend to do more audible these days because I'm traveling back and forth to me. I do a lot of audible on planes. Yeah, I do so. too. And, and and they're perfect for the plane, right? You can just listen while while everything else is going on around you. So it's nice. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think that, that we can close with is, is just any final advice that you might have for a young woman, especially, you know, a young woman that might find herself in um, similar shoes. And, you know, she needs to provide for her child. And, you know, I think dentistry is a great way to at least be paid more per hour than the Joe Schmo. And it's a respected profession. But just, you know, any pieces of advice that you might be able to share with her? I guess starting out, we've talked a little bit about how nobody's just in anything in a dental office in my mind. And even if you're working in that environment, I, I want to be the voice that maybe tells you that's not true um, and that you will, you will always build more value to any organization that you work with currently or in the future, the more that you open yourself up to learn and opening yourself up to learning is uncomfortable a lot of the time <laughs> and it might come at the hands of a person that you don't necessarily get along with or you don't personally click with or you don't even always respect but there are there are things to learn from nice dentists and mean dentists and the greatest hygienist who you love and is so nice to people but also the one <laughs> who not everybody does love you know there there are things that you can learn in an office and I always think it's a shame when I meet um, people in any position in a dental office who don't know more about the big picture of their office mm -hmm. that live in the the column of their day and don't understand how other things impact them and don't understand um, the roles from other people's seats because it makes for such a nicer team environment, but also you just learn so much if you open yourself up to doing it. Well, we're all human beings first, right? It is not what you do that defines you. It's who you are and how you, be, how you are being day to day. Absolutely. I generally don't tell people I'm a dentist because I just feel like I'm a human being. I, I, I work in the dental profession. I, I, that's what I do. But who I am should be reflected more on the actions that I take every day 
you know, saying good morning, saying good afternoon, you know, being respectful of my team, you know, taking a bullet for my team when, when I have to, because that's what a leader does, right? Absolutely. And standing up for them when, when, you know, somebody else is, is, you know, trying to throw them under the mud. It's, it's what we should be doing. It's not, it's not about the roles that we play. It's about supporting each other and being there for each other. I think. I completely agree. I, I guess the, the, the best kind of sum, summing up that last thought that I didn't get out perfectly eloquently is if, if you really want to learn from others around you and you really want to have the best relationships from other people in your team, taking with, taking with you to the office every day, the best assumption about every person that you work with okay. is the best way to do that. <laughs> it's, it's easier said than done, but we, we tell ourselves a lot of stories and women are good at doing this, you know, that this single action must mean this giant thing. And, you know, if instead of our story being, she never does the instruments, you know, she obviously disrespects me. It could be, that's not right. She wouldn't always want me to do the instruments. I should talk to her about it. <laughs> you know, like if you could, do it that way. You would have such different interactions with people that you work with. Stuff that seems big would seem little and you, you would just learn so much more and progress in your career and your ability to communicate, let alone know about dentistry at a totally different, totally different way. That's awesome. Genevieve, thank you so much for being here. And I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Me so too. I really appreciate your time and, and, and taking time out of your day to be here. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.